Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Rashawn Evans, and you're listening to the No Nonsense Podcast. to No Nonsense, a Tennessee Titans podcast, your place to go for on-demand Titans coverage that is 100% free of all the nonsense that we see in sports talk these days. I'm Luke Warsham, joined by the other two hosts of No Nonsense, Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas. We are back with a special guest coming later on, a, a an overwhelming favorite, and for those of you who filled out our survey, uh, we're bringing Titans Film Room, our good friend, back onto the show. He's going to help us figure out what's wrong with the Titans defense because uh, it seems like there's a lot wrong with it right now. But the Titans are 2-0, and guys, as we sit here right now. And so I'll just open it up as we start. Uh, let, let's start with positive because we can have a tendency every now and then to be a little cynical. My, me, probably the biggest purveyor of that. Uh, what has impressed you the most about this team to this point? Yeah, I, I'm pretty negative myself, so uh, I'm definitely yeah a proponent of that. Also, uh, the biggest positive for me, I I don't know. This is actually tough. I, I don't know. Uh, even though we're two and zero, I've been kind of underwhelmed by the Titans' performances through these first two weeks. But if I were to single out a couple of positives, I think it's the pass catchers, because we came into at least I came into the season thinking. You know, the 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 top three are, are fine. Top three receivers are fine. Uh, but after that, there's a lot of, you know, not very good players. And then I wasn't sure if John was going to take the next step because he, he didn't last year, even the Delaney was out for the whole season. But the pass catchers have been probably the best part of this team. John New Smith looks like he has finally taken the next step into that elite tight end category that we've expected for for like a year probably uh just because of his athletic traits and what we've seen him do after the catch and all that and he seems to have finally put it all together he has three touchdown catches through two weeks and with aj brown a lot of these other guys have stepped up Corey davis is in a contract here and he's been easily our best receiver although adam humphreys is kind of right behind him because that guy catches everything and I think a lot of people forgot just how important he was last year, even though we didn't need him. Uh, once Tannehill came in, you can see that they already have a connection through two games this season. And he's just, you know, that third down chain mover that that's so crucial for a team like this, especially uh, when their number one receiver is injured. Yeah, I, I figured you would say Ryan Tannehill. So I'll go with Ryan Tannehill. Like it's. It's not, and we've talked about this a lot before, but 
and we may talk about it later, but the whole regression thing was always overblown and it was based on the idea that Adam Gase had gotten the ideal version of Ryan Tannehill and that all we were seeing now is a mirage. But I mean, he's been great. He's been accurate. He's been solid on the move. He doesn't take unnecessary hits. It's not like he's running, you know, I'm, I'm extra critical of Deshaun Watson, and I think he runs from clean pockets a lot, even though he doesn't always have clean pockets. When he, the rare times he does, he runs from them. But that's not the case with Tannehill. Like he'll stick in and take a hit. He'll run when the pocket's moving. He'll stop his feet. I mean, there there's not many things that Tannehill does that don't wow me at this point. Like the throw to Adam Humphreys, great for a touchdown. Is great. Uh, putting the ball up in the end zone consistently where only his tall receivers and tight ends can get it. Great. I I, I don't know if I'm being too praiseworthy of him because it's not like he's running an air raid offense or anything like that. I don't want to make it sound like any sort of concerns about him aren't legit. Like, well, you're okay. He threw four touchdowns on Sunday. Yeah. uh, uh, That's what I was going to say. But when a guy goes out and he throws four touchdowns and he has like a 75% completion percentage on the year through two games, it's hard to not be effusive in praise. So I think it's time for us to stop like qualifying his success. He's just a good NFL quarterback and bordering on great. Yeah. Yeah, he's been incredibly efficient so far. And I I want to say a couple things. Uh, You know, Will, you you bring up the point. If there's anything we've learned through the, and I I know Matthias will have something to say about this. If there's anything we've learned from the first two weeks of this 2020 NFL season, it is that no argument for anything should ever start with, well, we know Adam Gase got the best out of him. I was uh, I was gonna say that as soon as yeah, Will right. said it. It's like we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't hold anyone to that. Adam Case. I mean, brief right. sidebar. What is his team doing? They stink. I mean, that that's who he is. Like, and I think the more and more he's away from that Miami team, the more kind of sad you feel for that franchise because I mean, they really had good players. They just had a terrible coach and you know he completely ran them down it's happening in new york too and i mean i don't think sam darnold's good but he's not as bad as you know gase is making him look no so uh don't don't hold anything that happened in miami against Tannehill. it's just it's a adam gase thing and also it's it's been three years two to three years it's over like that part is completely in the rearview mirror he is very Tannehill is very clearly a different quarterback. He's on a different organization. He's surrounded by different players, and he's just playing better. And I don't know why it's so hard to to grasp this concept for a lot of people. If if Ryan Tannehill wasn't on this roster, it would terrify me to think that the next offensive coordinator would be Adam Gase because I can see a world where it's like, what's the worst possible decision somebody could make? And it's bringing in Adam Gase to be an offensive coordinator and thinking that makes anything better because somebody's going to do that next year after he gets fired. And it's just going to mm-hmm. be like Hugh Jackson, like, and all these other bad head coach, bad offensive coordinators who got lucky. Like what a nightmare. You know, whenever I talk about uh, Marcus Mariota's really impressive 2016 season that he had for the Titans, 
the word I always use to describe is he was an assassin. That's just who he was. I mean, remember the insane red zone stats, the the no-look passes he would throw carving up defenses. Uh, you know, he wasn't Patrick Mahomes level or, you know, Lamar Jackson or anything like that, but he was an assassin. And he was a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback, and he would have been in the Pro Bowl had he not broken his leg at the end of the season. For the first time, uh, you know, he was great last year. But I used that word to describe Ryan Tannehill on Sunday, and that's who he has become for the Titans. This dude's an assassin. He is out there, you know, delivering strikes, carving up defenses, and more than anything else, now this is his team. And I know that is such a sports talk radio-y thing to say, you know, this is Ryan Tannehill's team, but it it, it just is. Like, the team kind of goes as he goes, everyone's looking to him, and he's running the show. And I think that is important to have from your quarterback. Uh, and you certainly got that from Marcus in, in his career before Tannehill got there. And you have it from him now, in addition to the, I mean, let's just be honest, if he continues at this pace, he's going to be in the MVP conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about this before, uh, especially with that run that the Titans went on last year with Derrick Henry. I just... After the Chiefs game, after the AFC Championship game, I just thought to myself, yeah, this Derrick Henry-led run-first offense is is great, and I think it could get you pretty far, but it can't get you the next level. It can't get you in the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl. And where would the Titans be right now if they weren't relying on Tannehill being uber-efficient through these first two weeks? I don't know if they'd be 2-0 because Derrick Henry— we're going to talk about him, I'm sure, at some point today. But he does not look very good. The running game has been really inefficient. They're racking up yards, but they're doing it at a very inefficient rate and in a very inefficient way. And the passing offense is just carrying the team because they keep converting uh, on, on these third downs. They keep moving the chains, and they're putting the ball in the end zone. I mean, six passing touchdowns uh, through the first two weeks of the season – is is good it's not something we're really used to from the titans or at least haven't been in the past so to see that Tannehill has has carried this over from last year and to see that he's able to actually carry the offense as a pass first offense i, I think is very uh, is a very good sign for, uh, for the future yeah i mean it's weird because, again, I don't want to jump the gun and get into the Derrick Henry stuff early, but this is a team that finds itself in third and seven and, you know, third and nine way too often compared to where they did last year. And if if we would have seen Tannehill play like this, uh, I, I'll say the first two games, was so it kind of played like this towards the end, but this would be a team known for reviving Ryan Tannehill's career and not a team that Derrick Henry dragged into the playoffs. And it's not a bad thing because the result's the same either way. But because the narrative started out as Tannehill's going to be, you know, the the backup to – not backup, but the Robin to Derrick Henry's Batman, the narrative was, okay, now that they've made a quarterback switch, everybody else around him is going to be the have to people be the people that step up and carry him forward. And – that really hasn't been the case. I mean, A.J. Brown was great last year. Derrick Henry was great last year. But it's not like 
Tannehill needed them to have 100-yard games each or else the team was going to lose. And we're seeing that now. So I, I was looking at this, and Corey Davis uh, and Adam Humphreys both have 10 catches. So Adam Humphreys has 11, Corey Davis has 10. The way they're used is very clear. It's Adam Humphreys is the guy who kind of digs out like five yards, six yards, and Corey Davis is the intermediate 12 to 15 yard guy. And it's, it's very surgical and Tom Brady, like in Ryan Tannehill is such a good handle in this offense. Now that he knows that this is Adam Humphreys is the tool I use for this. You know, Corey Davis is the tool I use for this. It's, it's almost methodical to where you can say, okay, it's third and six. I know that he's going to throw the ball to Anthony Ferks or, or to Corey Davis. Like, and it's good that you know that because you know, he's, he's not going to try to make somebody do something they're not supposed to. And it just shows. I I sent you guys a message during the game and I was like, if it's third and less than five, you know, it's going one of the white guys first or Humphreys. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's Adam Humphreys or his big brother. Like that's what it looks like out there. And it's, I mean, I can't tell them apart at times, man. I'm going to be on it. And it's not just the skin color. They look like stocky, you know? Yeah. And they both, first there's not very, they're also both really good. Yeah, they're both. Yeah, they're, I know. both of them seem to intentionally fall down after every catch. So it's yes, like, every it's, single. It's, it's cool. Like like I said, that's their job, and Tannehill doesn't ask him to do any more than that. But it's like, I mean, in the red zone, he's thrown what four passes that were in the red zone that were touchdowns. Like Corey Davis, he threw it above C.J. Henderson's head. Like he basically had him moss him. Same thing with Johnny Smith. The only pass in the end zone that hasn't looked the same from the red zone was the Michael Pruitt one under pressure in Denver. But it's like, he knows like, okay, until somebody stops my tall guys from just mossing these other guys, like I'm not going to stop throwing that pass because I know it works and it just keeps working. So, I mean, it's just, it's just good to see a quarterback that controls the offense and not the other way around. And I think this is the first time since Mariota in that 2016 season where you're seeing that. Um, I, I, I want to stay on the offense, uh, but I do want to slightly shift topics. Well, actually, let, let, let's stay on the weapons uh, discussion. Matthias, you brought that up as your uh, big positive takeaway from the season so far, the fact that the weapons have held up. You know, this is it's the best Titans offense maybe ever. I mean, people have, saying, have said, you know, these are the best weapons they've had since – such and such and such and such, and maybe Derek Mason or, or or someone like that. I just think you might as well let's call a spade a spade. Is this not just the best Titans offense ever? When AJ Brown gets I, back, yeah. I, I, from a talent perspective, I mean, I feel I feel like it's kind of hard to argue. Right? I mean, they've just got I, so I, many weapons. Ferkser is so good. He's Owen Daniels out there. And uh, uh, Humphreys, I mean, he was invisible last year until Tannehill got in, and then he became visible and got hurt. And he is money on those those third and intermediate, third and short plays. And then, of course, you got Corey Davis, who who I looks like he's taken a step forward. We talked a lot about him last week. And then once A.J. Brown gets healthy, you've got one of the most explosive playmakers and arguably the best player after the catch in the NFL I mean this is a really talented group I didn't even mention Jonu Smith yeah Yeah, it's talented and the best part about 
all these weapons is that they complement each other perfectly. Oh yeah. Not one of them is the same as the other one. Yeah, it's know? not John ten Smith six is totally five different. guys. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you have Humphreys, who's the short slot guy who catches everything. Uh, Ferkser is kind of like him, but he's taller and, and he's really good on like those the, those corner routes up the seam. Also, John Smith is just so athletic. Corey Davis is a little bit of everything. Then you have AJ Brown, who's the after the catch specialist, uh, and then you can even put him through it there, or even Batson, who looked who looked good in this last game. He actually had a couple of good plays, even though we've been so critical of him in the past. Uh, he had a couple of plays that were, that were pretty important for the team uh, yesterday. So it's just a really good batch of weapons that really complements each other well and can be you in, in different ways. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the best Titans offense in the last decade and probably the best ever. Like, it's hard to compare eras, but in, you know, anytime you say it's the best ever, people instantly want to say, yeah, but you don't understand this guy's great. I mean, they don't really have a weak point if everybody's healthy. Like, they're starting 11 on offense is all Pro Bowl caliber or players who are finally playing up to their potential. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely the most potent offense I've ever seen in Tennessee. And we haven't even gotten Darrington Evans back. Or Derrick Henry. Khalid like, Raymond doesn't exist also. Yeah, so. like, uh, you know, <laughs> and we like as soon as I got done talking, I was almost like, you know, it's the best offense we've ever seen. And we had like we're talking about the quote unquote other guys like if A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry get hot after this and they can somehow maintain the rest of the players doing well. Like, I mean, this team will score 35 points a game. They scored 30 points on Sunday, and they basically did it by accident, you know, not getting anything from the running game. There's three things that are, so, that are so exciting about this offense in terms of the future. Number one, y'all mentioned the guys that they don't have back right now. A.J. Brown, Darrington Evans, both figure to be major components to this attack by the time we get to, say, the end of October. Uh, they've had, as our good friend Rick Merritt tweeted, the Dollar Tree version of Derrick Henry so far. Uh, or the Kroger version of Derrick Henry so far. And we, we'll get more into that in a minute. Uh, and number two, I asked Frable after the game, because after week one, some of the guys on offense had said, you know, we didn't look like ourselves. We want to get back to looking. And so I said, do you think they got that today? Because I certainly did think they got that. And Frable said, yeah, a little bit, but, man, we've got some penalties to clean up. we got to block better. we got to – and I'm just like – Wait, so that was the version of them that you think wasn't that good. They have room to grow because it's only two weeks into the season and they had no preseason. And they had three weeks of practice. I mean, it's sky's the limit for this group yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely not at full capacity right now uh, because of the preseason, like you said, but also because uh, – the running game hasn't gotten going, not even close. Like we're, we're going to talk about it. Uh, I think with Titans film room, it's at some point probably, yeah. uh, because Henry just doesn't look like himself right now. He's getting the touches. He's getting the yards, but he's not breaking away. He's not really getting the chunk gains and he's going down on, on first contact too often, which we've seen before. This isn't, this isn't new. We've seen this mm -hmm. version of him before. 
But once it gets to the colder months, once it gets into a rhythm, like he just turns it on and it happens every single year. So that's why I'm not totally worried about him, but it just kind of gives me more hope for, for the rest the, for the rest of the season outlook because we haven't even gotten him going. And if you add last year's Derrick Henry down the stretch to this passing offense, I mean, there's no reason why we can't go on a similar run like we did last year. Yeah, I mean, we're getting September Henry, which is always disappointing because we're just coming off December or January Henry. Or, so, or as like, our friend Mike Herndon says, Henber. Yeah, like, I mean, once like once you go through that and it's like, you know, okay, this guy's going to have 120 yards. It's just, what, is he going to get it in his first 10 carries or is it going to take him 15? Like, once you come from that and he turns back into, like, he doesn't turn into a pumpkin or anything, but it's like he turns into a guy who you're like, okay, there's very clearly something that he needs to get worked out or some switch that he needs to flip that takes a while because the way this offense is schemed, it's almost like they don't mind smaller guys getting in the backfield. Like, they don't, they don't, make those guys a priority on the edges to block. And in October and November, December, he runs through cornerbacks, no problem. But in, in September, you just don't get that from him. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's, you know, he needs a pumpkin spice latte in the morning or else he can't do it. I don't know what it is, but there's something about like, as he goes on, he doesn't, it's not like other teams are worn down. He clearly hits another gear and is faster and more aggressive in his cuts. Now he's so tentative and it's just everything's, you know, trying to find the right hole stuff and not enough, like lower your head and like go. And, you know, there's no big cutbacks or anything like that. And that'll come. But yeah, like this is why they drafted Darrington Evans is to help him get through this stretch. And he's absolutely failed them. Well, and here's the thing, too. You know, we're obviously used to seeing Derrick Henry be one of the most explosive players in the league. Uh, we obviously haven't seen that so far this year. But I, through, during the week, I, I was reading through a transcript of a press conference that Doug Marone had with the Jacksonville media. And he said so, he was asked about uh, stopping Henry or something like that. And he made a really interesting point that I think can apply to every team, but particularly the Titans with what they're going through right now. He, he said, some, I'm very much paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, you know, even if they give it to him and he only gets three yards, it still becomes second and seven. So then you give it to him again and, oh no, we only got two yards. But then you're in third and five and you have your whole playbook open. So it's like, yeah, Henry hadn't been great. Don't get us, don't get me wrong. But number one, we know the potential he has, like you said, Will, to eventually break out and become December Derrick Henry. But also, like, the Titans are still committed to running the football, which is make, making life a whole heck of a lot easier on you know, Ryan Tannehill, on Arthur Smith, and everyone else. Yeah, he's not he's not terrible right now. He He's just not the amazing Derrick Henry that we've, you know, grown accustomed to. I mean... But it's not I, like he's, he's Saquon in week one against Pittsburgh where he had six yards on 15 carries like that. It's not that bad. You know, I remember the days when you would sit in Nissan stadium and hear Mike Donegan, who's their PA announcer go Johnson gain of one over and over and over again. They're past that. 
Yeah, like this, this again. I know, I know that a lot of people that listen to us like love Derrick Henry, and I, I, trust me, I can't wait to see Derrick Henry at a hundred percent too. Like, but there's a reason why he doesn't get catch, he doesn't get as many touches early in the season as he does late. Like, I, I guess there's a reason why Deion Lewis always got carries when he was here early, and Demarco Murray. Like, there's there's been a pattern like he obviously doesn't impress people as much early in the season. And then he heats up late. It's what he's done for, you know, his entire career in the NFL. Like that's just who he is. And I, I think the Titans recognize that, like I said, and I think they brought in Darrington Evans thinking, okay, we can give, still give Henry 15 to 20 touches. And then we can get some more explosive plays from 10 rushes from Darrington Evans. And Evans hasn't been able to stay healthy. And now they're asking a kid from Appalachian State to come in with limited training camp and no NFL experience and play. And I think that's going to be a disaster. But like that, they did try to solve this problem. It's not like it's something new that, or something that Henry looks like he lost. It's just we have to remember that he's got to have a four to six week grace period where you have to have somebody else carry your offense and then you can hand it over to him when it gets cold and everything works out fine. I want to talk real quick before we, well, not real quick. Uh, I think this actually deserves some attention. Uh, before we bring Justin onto the show, I'm waiting for a text from him to let us know he's ready. I want to talk about Arthur Smith. I remember at the end of the 2018 season, sitting in the writer's room at St. Thomas Sports Park, writing my season recap column, because it was like, it was locker cleanout day. And the writers that were in there, we were joking around like, hey, do y'all remember when they hired Matt LaFleur and everyone was like, oh, someone's just going to hire him as a head coach, LOL. And then like a week later, it happened. And we were all like, do what? When the Packers hired Matt <laughs> LaFleur? Um, when Arthur Smith becomes a head coach in, let's see, four months, five months, I don't think anybody's going to be too surprised. Like, this guy, like 11 months ago, looked like he didn't know, you know, an out route from his rear end. And now he's a magician now that he has a competent quarterback. This guy is, I mean, I don't want to toot his horn too much because he's not, I don't think he's, you know, a Kyle Shanahan or a, a Sean McVay or someone like that. But, I mean, goodness gracious, from what we're seeing from guys like Adam Gase, who we who has been called an offensive genius? Like, give me Art Smith over him or any of these guys, most of these guys, any day. Uh, for, for sure. I, I mean, I, I still have – I'm still not totally and, and, sold and on him. And that's fair. I think I'm certainly the same way. I, again, I'm not sitting here saying that he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but he's really darn good. He's got a good touch. He he does he he does he has a pretty good feel for for games, and he's just designed a really good offense. It's like it's very basic. There's nothing complex about this offense, but it just works because you don't have to outthink yourself to actually, you know, gain yardage in the NFL to actually put up points. Just run the ball efficiently, use a lot of play action, use a lot of misdirection. And you're fine. Like, it's not that difficult. Don't make the route 
combinations too complex. If you don't have the talent for it, run short routes, run intermediate routes. It's it's not difficult. And just get the ball to your playmakers, which is exactly what he knows how to do. And that's that's like saying a lot because the Titans in the past have not been able to get the ball to their playmakers. Remember when DeMarco was kind of on his last legs that final year and we were begging yeah. Derrick Henry to, to get the ball. And they just wouldn't give him the ball for whatever reason. They kept running DeMarco up the middle. Well, and I mean, it was but, just... So I think, annoying. I think you make a really good point, and it's that far too often what we see offensive coordinators doing is overcomplicating things. Getting and it's it's not even just like yeah. getting cute; it's just do, being weird. I mean, Terry Robisky did that. Some of the designs he ran were Will, as someone who breaks down the tape, you would agree with this. Some of the stuff Robisky ran was just bizarre. Whereas Arthur Smith keeps it simple. You have Derrick Henry. Run the ball 25, 30 times a game. You have Ryan Tannehill, let him throw the ball on third and short. Spread it out. You know, you have these great you, – you, you, know, you don't have A.J. Brown? That's fine. Give the ball to Cam Batson. He's fast. Get him to the edge. You know, just be smart. Be sensible. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to throw some cold water on this. Like, Arthur Smith is, is very good. Like, I appreciate what he's done. But I will say that uh, we learned last year that Tannehill calls a lot of plays at the line of scrimmage and that he's been given full permission to, if he sees something he likes, to go hurry up. And the Titans are third in the league in uh, no huddle or like hurry up offense. They do it 23% of the time. So there's a lot of that where he and Arthur Smith are just on the same page and Tannehill sees something and he goes and he calls a play that he likes. And there's there's a lot of value in that, that Arthur Smith understands that that's something a quarterback should be able to do and that should be encouraged to do because having a mastery and an ownership of that offense helps you succeed. Um, But I do want to be careful how effusive we are when we talk about him because it's like, okay, he does a really good job when he calls plays. The Titans also lead the league in first down runs. And I don't love that. Uh, it's a historically inefficient play, but I will say that he does that because the 70% of the time he does that, it sells the 30% of the time he runs that boot and the boot plays are so explosive that you're okay getting three yards or four yards from Derrick Henry on first down 70% of the time, because that 15, 20 play or 15, 20 yard play is worth it. So all I'm saying is, I think that anywhere he goes in the future, he's going to need a quarterback like Tannehill who's smart enough to help him kind of co-run the offense. But if he gets that, I mean, look at what LaFleur is doing in Green Bay. Uh, They lead the league in points per game. I think they average like 43 points or something in in these two games. So It's because Matt LaFleur is a weird play caller, but he's a good football coach. Well, but they run the same thing. Like they they want to yeah. run that zone. They want to run like okay, we're going to make it to where you have to defend with an extra guy in the box, and you have to stop Aaron Jones. And then if you don't, you're going to have to deal with this quarterback who can run it, he can throw it, or he can throw it deep to somebody. Like you have to cover every blade of grass, and we're going to make you do that horizontally and vertically, horizontally and vertically, and like. That that's an impossible thing to do. You just can't cover that much ground, and that's why it's successful when you have those great players at quarterback and running back. Um, yeah, and again, I, I want to say 
because I think I maybe gushed a little bit too much, uh, or maybe it came across as that. I don't think Arthur, again, I don't think Arthur Smith is anything revolutionary. I agree with everything Will said, I, and I agree that he has limitations. I'm just saying he's a good football coach, and with teams hiring, you know, like, I mean, every time that coaching hires happen, you just shake your head, and it's like, what are you doing, man? Well, I can tell you, like, I can tell you that what's going to happen in six months or whatever is he's going to go to Detroit to be the new head coach there. And they're going to see him as somebody. Please no, he deserves better and, than that. And then uh, he's going to get Matt Stafford going with Kenny Galladay, and then they're going to have DeAndre Swift working, and then they're just going to add offensive line. It'll work in two years, and the Titans are going to get Matt Patricia to be their defensive coordinator. Like that's well, that's the trade they'll make. I wouldn't mind the latter oh, of those two moves. I yeah, I actually wouldn't mind that. No, it'd be it's, it's be better crazy. than what's going on right now. Yeah, it's great for everybody. You get Arthur Smith out of the division. He goes into a place where he gets players that work for him. He gets quarterback and wide receiver set up. He just needs to make sure he's got the running back. And the Titans get a guy who should, from this point on, probably be a defensive coordinator for life because he very clearly doesn't want to be a head coach that badly. So, like everybody wins. Uh, we're, we're about halfway through the episode, so we're going to go ahead and take a, uh, a quick break. When we get back, you're going to hear from Titans Film Room. We're also going to do Stop the Nonsense, as always, and talk a little bit more about the Titans' upcoming matchup against the Minnesota Vikings. All right, but before we bring uh, Justin on, guys, I'm going to bring back up a name that I mentioned briefly when I was talking about Arthur Smith, uh, just to get Will's thoughts. Uh, Will, your boy, Cam Batson, uh, was had a pretty nice game for Titans on Sunday. Two first downs. Hey, I am not too big to admit that. He did, he did great. Like, he did great for what he should be asked to do. He and Khalif Raymond should battle it out for a position for somebody who can get two or three good plays a game and who have special teams utility. Like, they should both be the wide receiver four or probably better the wide receiver five. And then, you know, you just keep rotating those guys in and out of your practice squad if you can. But Batson looked good. I mean, he took that jet sweep. I think it was the first jet sweep of the season that we saw. It's something that I think they should keep doing because motion always helps an offense. So it's not too gimmicky to where it doesn't work. I, I, I enjoyed it. Like, I thought Batson looked good in space. I think he made Miles Jack fall over, which is always a quick way into my heart. Yes. Um, and then, then he had the open field catch where I think he had to dive to make it. it. It was it was a good throw, but it was one of those where he extended his hands, and as he was falling, it kind of hit him right in the chest where it was supposed to. But it was one that Tannehill – I think it was the – it might have been on the go-ahead drive uh, before the last field goal that he caught it. And it was, it was a clutch play. So, I mean, I'm critical of Batson. I don't think he can do – anything special for you just like I don't think that Khalif Raymond can do anything special for you but there's games where Khalif Raymond is gonna you know have a 40 yard touchdown and he's gonna look great and you're gonna forget that you can't use him in any other way but that and there's gonna be game where games where Cam Batson makes people miss in space and you forget that he's not a complete wide receiver but uh, you know not to be overly negative because I'm not trying to be but like he can be that guy for you that like Apparently, he is worth a roster spot. Now, it's just, is that his one flash in the pan, or is he a guy who can do that for you two or three times a week now that teams know who he is? Probably a flash in the pan. <laughs> yeah, like, saying. if he, 
I mean, if he if he does it like four games in a row where he has all he has to have is one play over ten yards, or he has to contribute to where it's like, okay, you can see that guy running in jet motion to try to stop him. Like if he does that and the Titans make a playoff of it, I'm cool with him playing. 10, 15, 20 snaps. What he shouldn't do is play 45% of the snaps while Khalif Raymond plays 55% of the snaps on offense. That That is unacceptable. All right. So All right. we have so far been focused on the Titans offense we talked about. Tannehill and Art Smith and Derek Henry. Well, now we brought on uh, our good friend Titans Film Room at Titans Film Room on Twitter. His real name is Justin. Uh, to talk about the Titans defense. Because whereas we're heaping glowing praise on the Titans offense. This defense has stunk through two games. If you ask me, if we asked you, Justin, has this defense stunk? And if so, why? I would say the defense was a lot worse week two than it was week one. I think week one maybe wasn't as great. There wasn't as much pressure as you expected after signing Jadeveon Clowney in the off season, but Playing up in the altitude and only allowing 14 points is pretty a pretty solid performance for any defense. You'll take that any week. But looking at the um, Week 2 matchup, allowing 30 points to Gardner Minshew's Jacksonville Jaguars is somewhat alarming, but also that offense is well-coached. Jay Gruden may not be a very competent head coach, but he's a hell of a play caller. He did great things in, in uh, Cincinnati with Andy Dalton and a bunch of playmakers, which is kind of an interesting comparison for what Gardner Minshew is. And those young playmakers on offense look good. So I think it may be a combination of that. And then looking at the defensive side, Harold Landry is playing way too many snaps. Even Javion Clowney played 82% of snaps against Jacksonville is just way too many snaps. I think Correa was on the field for 12 snaps in week two. So what's going on with that? That's in a really interesting rotation that needs to get sorted out. And I have an interesting theory, I think, on that. And then there's um, Adoree Jackson, who's the best player in the secondary, besides Kevin Byer, the best cornerback, though, and certainly the best man-to-man shutdown cover cornerback. Having a guy like that allows you to do a lot more in the back end. So has it stunk through two weeks? It's not been anything like what you we expected, maybe, coming into the season, but I don't know that it's necessarily stunk. I mean, they aren't the Vikings. They aren't the Giants. They, you know, they, they're not great, but I don't know if they stink. <laughs> well, what do you think is the main reason uh, that the Titans defense maybe has underwhelmed? Do you think it's the injuries? Because I would lean there just because Adore is such a key part. And also, like you said, Clowney and Landry are playing too many snaps because Vic Beasley and Derek Roberson haven't been able uh, to get into the game yet. Do you think it's the injuries or, or do you think uh, the play calling has also, uh, you know, contributed to that? I think maybe a little bit of both and maybe a little bit of Logan Ryan and Jarrell Casey, who were not only great players their whole time here, but they were great leaders. And, you know, Casey did a great job of plugging up the middle and absorbing double teams in the run game and doing things that helped the linebackers slow to the ball. And we've seen some struggles in the run game so far. And then, what Adoree Jackson allows you to do in the secondary is call a lot more disguised plays. And I think the reason that, so it's kind of both, it's Adoree Jackson's injury and the outside linebackers injuries and the play calling, which is a result of Adoree Jackson's injury. Something that I noticed watching the coaches film of this game going back is that the Titans aren't doing a whole lot of disguising. Like, I don't think there was a 
typical zone type blitz in this game, and you'd think they'd be trying to disguise their looks against a young quarterback like Gardner Minshew, try to catch him off guard and and trick him before the snap, right? But I tend to think after, especially after Jonathan Joseph went down, that when you have all those rookies on the field, Chris Jackson and Christian Fulton both played a lot of snaps, and even Laurel Murchison got out there a bit on the defensive line. When you have rookies like that in the secondary, they weren't calling those looks where it kind of looks like man before the snap and then they bail into a cover three or it looks like cover two and becomes a cover three or it looks like cover three and then becomes a cover two or whatever it was. They weren't doing a whole lot of rolling into cornerbacks, rolling into safety style, deep third coverages, stuff that they did a lot last year. So I think maybe they're keeping it a little bit vanilla, for lack of a better word, because of the personnel that they have available right now. I'm glad you bring all that up. So my read on this whole thing is that whoever's calling the plays is terrified of leaving Jonathan Joseph in coverage uh, for more than two or three seconds without safety help. And he they're afraid. I, I, I don't know if it's Bowen or Vrabel, but whoever it is, is afraid of, you know, giving up any explosive play, which is why they play so much of the sticks and they try to keep everything in front of them. I mean, there was so much like five zone over the middle, like right at the sticks with two safeties up high, like. It was just so clearly like we're going to, oh, it's like, okay, third and nine, drop, you know, drop five guys right at the sticks, hope that they don't convert and hope that nobody runs underneath. And almost like clockwork, it would be LaVishka Schnault on a drag or it'd be Chark on a curl. I mean, it just, and they, they weren't wide open, I guess, but like they were, the defense wasn't doing anything to take that away. There was nobody jumping routes. There was nobody, you know, trying to change it up and press at different times. It it just looked so vanilla and the same thing over and over and over that I I can't understand why. And I'm I'm just going to put it on Vrabel right now. I don't know why Vrabel's default whenever a corner gets hurt is to play terrified football and play on your back heels instead of blitzing and trying to make, the quarterback make mistakes. Does that make any sense to you? So here's what I think the strategy is. And I do think the opponent plays a factor in both of these first two games were against young second year quarterbacks who haven't, don't have a lot of NFL experience. Drew Locke uh, specifically has question marks about his accuracy and ability to hit those kinds of plays consistently. Gardner Minshew doesn't really have those many question marks at least when it comes to accuracy and getting rid of the ball quick but he's still a sixth round pick in his second year right so i think maybe the strategy going in to these games is give knowing the the injuries and the lack of depth in the secondary and lack of experience is force these young quarterbacks to put together 12 play 80 yard drives 14 play 90 yard drives and say our offense is going to do that more times than your offense is going to do that You'll eat a lot of clock by doing that, especially if the Titans are up by two touchdowns like they were frequently in this game. They would go up by one touchdown and then go up by two and then back by one and back by two until Jacksonville finally came and tied it up. So I think that that's part of the strategy. And just not yeah, not wanting to give up the big play is that forcing your team, whether it's the quarterback or a young receiver or a young offensive lineman like uh, right tackle Juwan, what's his name, Taylor, I think, who was missed all almost all of last year. Those guys like make make somebody on offense make a mistake, whether it's a false start or a hold, or the receiver is at the wrong depth, or Minshew misses on a throw on on one of those big third downs, and then you get off the field. You know, like how many con- third downs is Minshew going to convert? But he converted ten of fourteen, right? And I think the Titans yeah. are actually the n- number one 
defense right now in terms of third down conversion percentage allowed, which is a horrible place to be, obviously. But that's also kind of a fluky small sample size thing. It's like red zone conversion percentage. Like how much of that is just like the offense had a good day and how much of it is actually good defense, you know, even when you look at a 16-game sample of third down defense, right? But all in all, I think it's it's that kind of strategy of like, yeah, we'll we'll give you the five yard completion because we don't think you can hit it ten times in a row type of the type of deal. Justin, I saw a tweet during the game on Sunday say when the defense was struggling, saying the Titans better get Dean Pease on the phone. Time to bring him back. Obviously, I don't I don't know that that tweet was uh, not tongue in cheek. I will ask this question though, knowing it's a small sample size. What is the difference in a Dean Pease defense and a Mike Vrabel Shane Bowen defense? So again, I don't think this is what a Mike Vrabel Shane Bowen defense necessarily wants to be right now. But the biggest thing is that that thing I was talking about is those rolling coverages or or a coverage that is disguised at the snap or the type of thing where you have like seven guys at the line of scrimmage. And you don't know which one's going to rush the quarterback and then three guys bail out and only four guys from that group come. We haven't seen a whole lot of that. It's been mostly like line up and play the way we're lined up. It's like they're playing preseason defense right now. And I don't know if that's Vrabel and Bowen getting their their groove together and trying to figure out a, a rhythm or if that's just because of the personnel they have or. I also kind of wonder, like, is Shane Bowen too distracted right now to sub out his his outside linebackers as the outside linebackers coach? Like, is Correa playing 12 snaps a decision, or is it like, oh shit, we forgot? To, sorry, am I allowed to say? That? Oh shoot, we forgot to yeah, sub you're out. Good. You're good. <laughs> oh crap, is Landry still on the field? We got to get Correa yeah. in there eventually. You know, like, I'm sure that's not what's going on, but like. What is going on? Are they is the offense just like playing no huddle constantly and they can't get a substitution in? I, I actually meant to look at that and I, I forgot to, but something <laughs> like that. I mean, there's something going on. Correa needs to play more than 12 snaps when the other, the other the other two outside linebackers play basically the whole game. Like that's insanity, totally insane. So is that Bowen's fault? Is that Vrabel's fault? Is that just because they don't have anyone else who's healthy? Who knows? Speaking of concerning uh, snap counts. Are you also as surprised as I am that Chris Jackson is getting this much run? A seventh round rookie who, I mean, I wasn't even sure he was going to make the team. And he's out here playing 50% of the snaps. Uh, week one, he played more than Chris and Fulton. Uh, and it just seems like Ty Smith, who actually has NFL, good NFL experience, would just make more sense, especially given the Adoree Jackson injury. Have you been surprised by that? And how do you think he's played so far? I would say yes, very surprised by that. You'd think he'd be the bottom man on the totem pole in the in the cornerback room. And I also wonder how healthy Kareem Moore is or not healthy Kareem Moore is, because I do think he could be a player that contributes in the secondary too. But Chris Jackson, I mean, he looks a little slow on the field in terms of his athleticism, but he he must just be knocking it out of the park in meeting rooms and being able to like recall assignments and explain defenses to his teammates and stuff because otherwise I can't imagine why he would be the guy like you said over someone like Ty Smith who's been there for years and Ty Smith isn't great in coverage but he's a heck of a tackler and he's a great special teams player and he can you know run zone coverage pretty well and come up and hit somebody so I'm surprised that Jackson has been playing over Fulton although Brabel said that it was because Fulton was hurt in training camp but even so I mean 
like I expected all rookies to kind of be slow in this this year. So it's not too surprising to hear Fulton's a little bit behind, especially after being injured. But that just adds to the surprise of Chris Jackson being on the field so much so early. But I do think we saw his snaps diminish a little bit in week two because he's not quite as talented as some of the other guys. Yeah, it looks like the plan long term is to put Fulton there and then have a Dory and Malcolm Butler man their side. But um, something I want to talk about that I've noticed is Jack Crawford's getting a lot of play, and that's fine. But they're playing him at defensive end, which is not where he normally plays. I think only 4% of his snaps have come inside the tackles, which I'm pretty sure that was the majority of his snaps last year was inside a defensive tackle instead of playing like, three, four, like five tech or whatever he was going to play. But my theory, since we're talking about theories and, you know, Shane Bowen, not knowing what to do and getting his guys out. My (laughs) theory is that once Roberson and uh, Beasley are healthy, we'll see more rotation on the edge, which means Crawford will be able to go back inside, which means we won't have to see Matt Dickerson as much, which is always the best case scenario for a defense is that kind of your read on it is you think Jack Crawford's playing a little bit too much outside. And once those edges come back, everything will be a little bit better up front. Probably. And I definitely think that's what Crawford's usage is about. I don't know that that's going to shore up the interior of the run defense per se, because I think Daquan Jones and Jeffrey Simmons are very strong interior defenders. And I think it's more about right now, the linebackers being slower when it comes to the run D in terms of Mm -hmm. triggering on the ball. But I do think that, I mean, Vrabel kind of hinted at that in one press conference where he just kind of, he didn't really say a lot about it, but he was like, somebody asked about only having three outside linebackers and he said something like, well, we got Jack there too, or something like who's been helping us out, which I definitely agree with your overall point there. Jack Crawford will play more inside when Roberson and Beasley, if they ever get on the field, come back. I'll wrap up with this question, Justin, and I think it's a good one to talk about. Through two weeks, the returns on Clowney have not seemed overly impressive. There was the play where he hurried Minshew on a play where he wasn't blocked. Uh, he had a hurry in uh, in week one against Drew Locke. So question number one is how much of this is from him, like, like Landry, playing too much? Because for those who were at the game on Sunday, me not being one of them, uh, the general consensus was Clowney looked tired at the end. And then secondly, what impact is he making? Because not only do you not see it on the stat sheet, but I can only recall a time or two where, you know, the eye in the sky, at least watching the game live, saw him making an impact. I think his impact has been felt. First of all, this is an obvious one, but what on earth would the Titans have done at outside linebacker if they hadn't signed Clowney? I mean, he's played 80 something percent of the snaps since he signed. Like, I don't know where Sean <laughs> Phillips these days. <laughs> I mean, yeah, is is Jamal Davis or Wyatt Ray going to be getting significant run in weeks one and two if Clowney wasn't signed? So, I mean, that's the obvious like right off the bat. You needed a guy, even just a body who's a starting caliber player out there. So even if we haven't seen, you know, the kind of huge impact that maybe you thought you might get right away. And then on the, the other thing is I do think he's been a little more impactful, I think, than is noticed. He had two quarterback hits, I think, in this game. The one play you mentioned where he was unblocked was actually a phenomenal design uh, in terms of the the upfront look. They had two guys pretty much, Clowney and I think Simmons right next to him, stacked over the 
right tackle and right guard and whatever Simmons did on his initial rush, he drew the attention of that right tackle. And that's what gave Clowney the free run at Minshew. It should have, he should have been blocked. It was just a well-designed little game up front to, to trick the offensive line. But there was a two, two other plays where he had nice pressure too. There was the touchdown to Chris Thompson where Clowney was bearing down on Minshew, which was just a phenomenal throw and really excellent coverage by Jayon Brown. Like if he turns his head around, he probably knocks the ball down, but even without turning his head around, he had his arms, he had his arm inside Chris Thompson's arms, and he ripped Thompson's left hand away off the ball and pinned it down at his side, and Thompson still managed to make the catch one-handed. So that's just a great off. Great offense is going to beat great defense almost every time. But Clowney was impacting that play. Clowney was in on the first play of the game, nearly forced an interception on a little looping stunt that he came up the middle and hit Minshew right as he was throwing. And he forced him out of the pocket a few times also that it's not Clowney's fault if there's nobody there to contain him. I I want I'm not 100% sure. I know for sure Minshew scrambled on one and I think the touchdown pass that Minshew scrambled over into the back of the end zone was forced out of the pocket by Clowney, but I'm not 100% sure. But I, he's been out there. I mean, he's been making plays, but let's consider the fact, and my colleague at Broadway Sports, Mike, Mike Herndon at Mike Miracles, has made this point a couple times in writing and on his own podcast. The Titans played at like midnight central time on Monday night in the altitude. Get home at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday Clowney didn't practice, or he was limited in practice the following Wednesday because uh, a lot of guys were limited. They didn't even have a padded practice that day because of the short week. And then you don't, you only have so many days to recover because it's a Monday night game and a super late Monday night game. On top of all that, no preseason. Clowney wasn't in a training camp with any team, so he's in. Although he was working out hard, he's not even close to in football shape because he wasn't really hitting anybody all summer and all August. So I think if you look at it through that lens there is a lot of optimism for potential improvement going forward. I think even as soon as the next game on Sunday, just giving the team a full week, the defense in general, a full week to like rest up and get their bodies right. And that also kind of plays into the defensive performance. I think again, not having a padded practice on Wednesday because of the short week going against a Jacksonville team that you think, you know, but has a new offensive coordinator and a lot of new young talent on offense and a lot of new young pieces on defense that it's not necessarily the same team you're used to game planning for. So that could be the other reason the defense was so quote unquote vanilla in this game is the short week. So fatigue, vanilla game planning, all that stuff is impacted by the Monday night game. And it's hard to zoom out and maintain the perspective when we're only in week two. And this is all we have to go off of so far. But I think it's a great sign that the team is 2 no at this point with pretty much everything that has gone wrong and we've you know talked about for the last 20 minutes or so so i don't know i I maintain optimism in terms of the defense being able to improve and fatigue getting better and especially especially when players start getting healthy real quick uh before you leave we kind of just want to get your thoughts on on derrick henry's start to the season i know you tweeted recently uh that this is his best start in his career uh, from a yards perspective, but we just have noticed that he's not really breaking tackles as consistently as as we're used to, and he just hasn't seemed like prime Derrick Henry. Granted, he's never been a quick starter; he always just gets better in the in the winter months. Do you think that's going to happen here, where he just he isn't great right now, but he really turns it on over the next couple of weeks? 
Yeah, and I think this is kind of a cop-out answer, but there's a lot of problems in the run game that aren't just with Derrick Henry. And I do think Henry isn't running maybe like the Henry we saw at the end of last year, but it's this is and that tweet that you referenced where he's at, he's got 200 yards through this first two games, which is his career high through two games of a season. And I I knew that that was a bit misleading when I when I tweeted it, but I because the efficiency isn't there, yards after contact is not there, yards per carry is not there. But all that said, Henry's never been a great starter. And that was kind of the point of my tweet was like, Henry made it to 1,500 yards and led the league last year. And he had less yards at this point in the year than he does right now. So, like, maybe don't pull all the alarms yet. But I do think that the offensive line is not – they have not picked up where they left off last year, like was theorized they would all offseason with the continuity. Like, oh, this offensive line should be able to, like – come in and steamroll people just like they were at the end of the 20, 2019 season. Like they haven't been, they have been missing some, there was like four or five plays in the Denver game. I haven't watched the offense as closely from Jacksonville yet, but in the Denver game, especially like four or five plays where one block just barely wasn't hit. That would have sprung the whole play where there was John o. Smith or Michael Brood or Kari Blassen game missed one. And Nate Davis got worked a few times and, you know, like when you have a unit like that, if one guy doesn't make their block, they can, it can blow up the whole play if someone screams in from the backside. And I think Henry actually ran a lot better in the second half. And the numbers look terrible because he had a seven yard loss on one play. And he had, I think, a two yard loss on that third and one pitch, which was just an ill-advised play from the start. So if you I know this isn't fair, but if you take out those two carries, then he's suddenly at 23 carries for almost 100 yards. That looks a lot better on the day. Um, of course, that's not fair to the defense to take those plays out. But, you know, he was ripping off. He didn't go further than 14 yards on any carry, but he was at least ripping off those six to eight yard chunks in the third and fourth quarter that were kind of like starting to make me make you think, OK, this is the Derrick Henry that we are used to seeing. I was muted. Justin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we always appreciate it when you can hop on. Uh, I have this right. Everybody can go find your podcast, Music City Audible, at MCA Broadway. You host that with our friend Justin Mello from the Draft Wire and also Broadway Sports. And, of course, at Titans Film Room on Twitter. That is all correct, right? You nailed it. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, uh, we always feel smarter at the end of our conversations with you, Justin, but thanks for coming on. Appreciate you guys. All right. We appreciate Justin coming on with us. You can, of course, follow him on Twitter at Titans Film Room. He's one of the best follows out there, uh, so be sure you're, you're tuned in to his content. Guys, uh, it is Tajay Sharp Revenge Week coming up. The Titans are heading for the first time to U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis to take on Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings. The early returns from this football team uh, have not been good. Matias, you want to embellish on that a little bit? This team stinks. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it makes sense. Because they lost a lot of a lot of players, and they didn't get anyone. It that they only got rookies. I actually really like their draft class, but they lost Everson Griffin. Daniel Hunter got injured. They don't have a wide receiver too. They lost Stephen Diggs, and they didn't replace any of these guys. Uh, well, they didn't get better. They did get uh, Yannick Ngakwe. 
Okay, that's cool. Yeah, they, they did get Ngakwe. Has he played? I haven't even I haven't even noticed him. Uh, anyway, <laughs> they. Uh, I think he got a sack actually. Yeah, he, yeah, he did. I think he had a strip sack. No, he didn't strip sack. But uh, yeah. like they they kind of lost Daniel Hunter, who's been on the injured reserve for. Yeah, yeah, and he'll be on there for the next. So it's like they they didn't net gain anything yet. But yeah, he looked out of shape in the first game, and then this past game he had a strip sack on Philip Rivers. Yeah, and it's not like they have bad play. They have a lot of good players. Eric Kendricks is one of the best linebackers in the league. Harrison Smith is one of the best safeties in the league. You better Adam list Thielen, my man the show the in this conversation. <laughs> uh, Dalvin's really good, but they don't, they, don't, they don't target him in the passing game, which is the best thing he does. He had two catches last week. Uh, and then in week one, he had one catch for negative two yards. And in the first half of the Packers game, week one, they threw the ball four times in the first half. Four times! They're playing this Stone Age offense that's not efficient, it's not explosive, it doesn't do anything. And on top of all of this, their secondary sucks now. Which was, it was so good for years, for years. But clearly, Mike Zimmer has lost his touch, and they don't have talent on the back end. And it is just a recipe for disaster, man. I mean, people used to call the Mike Malarkey Titans offense Stone Age. But, like, four throws in the first half? That's Stone Age. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's awful. It's not great. And, like, four throws, like, you would expect him to, like, scan the field. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to be super conservative and pick the wide receiver that fit. I mean, it looks like he's looking – his first read is always Thielen. His second read is always Kyle Rudolph. And then his third read is Irv Smith. Like, it looks like he gets to those That's the problem three. right there. Yeah. When Kyle Rudolph is your second read, it, it, you're bad. They you're, drafted yeah. the best receiver in you know college football last year. What? Where is he? Yeah, my poor son Justin Jefferson. He'll 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 get out eventually. Like they'll trade him to the Titans for like a sixth round pick, and it'll all work <laughs> out. My, my my what do you call them? A vision board where you like put up ideas Me- like you want. And you try to visualize them into existence. Mean- meanwhile, Stefan Diggs and and Josh Allen are going off in Buffalo. Oh, Josh Allen is you know my stop the nonsense almost was just me talking about Josh Allen in the past. Like he looks great. Like I think, I think, I think the problem is, is he's having a Tannehill career arc and I'm just not paying attention to it. So I I think I've, well, he was bad in week one, but he played well this week. I'll give him that. Well, but I mean, he's still like over his last 16 games. I think somebody posted, he's like 35 and seven, like 35 touchdowns, seven interceptions. And like, he's got more rushing touchdowns than Lamar Jackson over the last two years by like a healthy margin. Like he leads the NFL in it. Like he apparently, I mean, like his stats make him sound really good and he does some dumb stuff a lot, but at the same time, like if your dumb stuff didn't throw in, you know, interceptions you can generally get yeah. away with it so I, I, I will say last year uh i got to watch him in person because uh, the bills played in in nashville and I, what struck me about him was when he throws from a wide base and steps into his throw and doesn't rush the process he's a, he delivers a accurate catchable football the problem is he wants to rush the process and 
I think that has limited him. But clearly he is uh, getting better at that. But this isn't a Bills podcast, so we can... No, we really can't. Yeah. <laughs> we, can yeah, head, no. we can head back to talking about the uh, the, the Vikings for a second. Um, I, I asked Will this before the podcast. I'm going to ask him again. Will, if uh, if you who, who's the Vikings, Jim? Rick Spielman is that his name, or am I thinking of someone else? No, that sounds fine. Okay, yeah. uh, if Rick Spielman, uh, if you're if you're John Robinson. And Rick Spielman picks up the phone and gives you a call and says, LJ, Rob, I'm going to send you back your boy, the show, Tajay Sharp. Just give me that kid you took in the first round this year from Georgia. Are you sending <laughs> the panda for the show? Yeah, I've, I've already signed it. Like, it's already, he's already gone. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm hoping that he doesn't see that he's already got COVID twice and that nobody knows <laughs> where he is or anything like that. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to say, like, Sure, like, do you know where he is? Because I can't get in touch with him. <laughs> like, I, 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 I do miss Tajay Sharp. He was one of my favorite players. Not because of his personality, not that he was anything revel, revel, revelatory on the field, but I, well, I thought he was a fun say, person to have on the team. We should also say that he had really good chemistry with Tannehill. Like, he especially did. in the red zone. Like, they really, like uh, the Saints play comes to mind where he, he and Tajay kind of mind-melded and knew exactly what the other wanted to do, and he threw it across his body. Like, I mean for like a 60 yard touchdown. It was great. Like the things they did together were like, okay, Tajay can be the number two receiver in this offense if they don't want Corey Davis. And now Corey Davis is stepping up. So it doesn't look like that, but it's like, it's crazy to me that he got a one year, $2 million deal because the Titans should have paid him that. And they're paying the price now by having to pay Batson and Khalif Raymond. Like that was their mistake is just completely ignoring the wide receiver position. And like, they created a need at offensive tackle and at wide receiver where they didn't have to create one. And had they not gotten Jadavian Clowney, it would have made no sense at all. But you can kind of back end your way into, okay, that's why they lost Conklin. But like this, the whole, all of the players involved are messed up by, because of the decision to not just keep Jack Conklin and Tajay Sharp. Like that. Well, they couldn't have afforded both of them, could they? Uh, with Casey traded. I mean, I've uh, got, I've had this guy has been tweeting me the last few weeks, saying asking why they don't have Logan Ryan on the team anymore. Like, I just don't think they could have afforded anything else. Well, I, I will I'll say this: in retrospect, no, they couldn't have. But at the time when they thought the cap space was going to go up twenty to forty million or whatever the projections were with the new money from the contract, then yeah, you could have afforded them. And definitely, so, definitely Tajay. But uh, well, yeah, but they, I mean, they like, didn't know Adore was going to get injured. Like that's been the biggest issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I want to say that what's Conklin making? Isn't it only like fifteen million? It's not like twenty million, is it? But they only have twelve million cap space. I mean, if they don't sign Clowney, sure they can keep right. But but if you would, yeah, but if you would have structured it to where you you spread it out to where he makes twelve this year and then he makes. 20 next year. I mean, just like they did with Tannehill's deal where you like, you make it like, just like every contract extension is right now where you just make it low front end and expect the cap to raise. And then eventually you have non-guaranteed money. Also the cap is a myth. I don't know why we're even talking about it. It doesn't exist. So like they, they <laughs> so could, weird. yeah, yeah, they the could Saints have, are signing Kamara to like a huge extension. Dude, I, of I, cap space. Yeah. My stop the nonsense retroactively is that <laughs> the uh, Saints are either going to have to blow up their entire team because Drew Brees has a noodle arm or like 
they're going to find some loophole to where they can keep all their players and it's going to be the worst day the cap ever had because nobody's ever going to believe it again. Why don't we go ahead and uh, we're getting toward the end of the show. We'll go ahead and close out with stop the nonsense because I feel like we've been itching to do it because we keep hinting at, well, I would have said this, but I've got this other thing coming. Uh, so, So let's go ahead and hop into that. Who would like to get us started uh, for Stop the Nonsense this week? I can I can go first. This is going to be a quick one. It's uh, <laughs> the Atlanta Falcons. That's it. That they're just <laughs> it's that's fine. Entire the Stop the Nonsense. Yeah. I mean, you know when, <laughs> they... when I'm go. I mean, when I'm watching a Titans game, I can't really focus on the other NFL games. So I just see a tweet. It's like the Cowboys are down nineteen. I'm like, man. Stupid. We were texting about it. Stupid. We talked McCarthy. about it. Yeah, because we talked about it in the group chat. <laughs> and then I just I see the later, like two hours later, of the Cowboys won. I was like, oh, that's classic Dan Quinn Falcons. God, the worst. It's just this is it. This is it. This is their franchise. They are built on deception. They are built on disappointment. <laughs> yes. They. There, there's nothing like redeeming about them, and I don't know if you guys follow any Falcons fans, but they see something like this happen, then they're just like, "Yep, eh. yep, <laughs> this is just this is exactly what yeah. we're used to." You're so desensitized. I have a book on my bookshelf called "A World of Lies," and I feel like that it might have been actually written about the Atlanta Falcons. It's just Dan Quinn's manifesto. Yes. <laughs> Uh, aside from from the Falcons just blowing every single opportunity that they have in in outstanding fashion, like like genuine Hollywood narrative fashion, <laughs> how is Dan Quinn still employed? I don't understand. They should have fired him after the Super Bowl and hired Kyle Shanahan. Guys, what you've got to understand is he went to the Super Bowl and he just put up thirty nine points. It's like that he he That's finds a, a way defensive to, coach. Yeah, defensive. he finds a he finds a way to pitch it. I, I have to assume, or else he'd be fired. But he finds a way to pitch it to where he always did the best. You know, the silver lining is always his thing, and then the downfall is always somebody else or whatever. But I mean, I think Dirk Cutter came out and said, uh, "It's my fault. We should have scored more points." And I don't know what sort of Jedi mind trick Dan Quinn used on him. <laughs> to say that 39 points was not enough to win the game but i mean that's either extreme loyalty or like stockholm syndrome um i'll go next with mine what i was going to do or what i considered doing was i love rich eisen i think he is the best sports broadcaster that it's not a play-by-play person easily for me but he said something on his show. He said that he thinks Josh Allen is in the MVP conversation. I don't vibe with that. But that's not my stop the nonsense. My stop the nonsense is you know, what happened to Tyrod Taylor, Tyrod Taylor, excuse me, was unfortunate on Sunday. But it ended up being fortunate for the Los Angeles Chargers in that they got to see Justin Herbert. Uh, play and he played very well nearly beat the Kansas City Chiefs who many people think are the best team in the NFL to Rod Taylor we know what he is he's an extremely limited quarterback with a very average arm does not have good arm strength I have made the comment before that he is fast Matt Castle he's a bridge quarterback at best 
So the Chargers saw what they have in Justin Herbert, this kid. And, you know, I'm always pushing, start the rookie, start the rookie, start the rookie. Say the same thing to Brian Flores, who's doing the Ryan Fitzpatrick nonsense right now. Start the rookie, start the rookie. So they start the rookie because Terod Taylor's in the hospital. The rookie plays really, really well. They almost beat a really good team. And what happens now? Anthony Lynn on Tyrod Taylor, quote, if he's 100% ready to go, he's our starter. I'd like to appreciate the first comment from at Playoff Chuma, which is simply L, because I agree with that. Why? Unless you... I, I don't get it, guys. Justin Herbert's better, correct? Yeah, I mean, yes. I don't... What, does he feel like he owes something to Tyrod Taylor? This isn't the, the I owe you business. This is the win football games business. Well, like, what makes it even worse is, like, he didn't even trust him at the end of the game. Like, they punted it in overtime. You don't punt in overtime, especially not of the Chiefs, a kicker didn't yeah. kick from 75 yards out. Like, the... <laughs> I, I don't like Herbert put together this great game and then he put, he got it to overtime. You know, the chiefs had a great drive. That's fine. You still got your chance to win. You've got the ball. And instead of letting your quarterback, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, like this is not a playoff team anyway. Like they, this is a season where they need to figure out what they've got in Herbert. And they just decided to give up. I mean, this screams of a head coach who does not want Herbert as his quarterback and a GM who does, and they're just not going to be on the same page about it. Well, the thing is, Anthony Lynn probably understands that he's gone after this year. So he's like, well, maybe Tyrod can, uh, you know, not turn the ball over. Yeah, but then your offense is completely low ceiling, and you could barely score enough points I mean, to, to beat the Bengals. Coach, like, sign, on, sign me up. I'll go out there and not turn the ball over. But leave. I can hand that <laughs> ball to Austin Eckler better than anybody else, okay? <laughs> You'll complain the least about not being able to throw it. Yes. Um, I will happily collect my check, take those boos, and head the house. Uh, that, it is truly unfortunate. Um, okay, I'm going to be more aggressive in mine. <laughs> just, <laughs> Please. Just uh, as per my usual. So the, this comes from Jim White's mailbag where uh, I love it. a, a a guy sent a message in and his message is basically it's, it's, he's a guy from Jacksonville. His name's Bud Stein. Uh, and he's he, the gist of his question is why does it seem like when the Titans get a 10 to 14 point lead, they tend to feel like the game is won or fall asleep or get too conservative. Not just yesterday's Jaguars game, uh, many of them. And they seem to play better when they come, when the game is close. What, uh, what are your thoughts? And Jim White, like, Jim White is paid by the Titans. We've said this before. Like, it's not like he's going to come out and be like, "Well, you're right. They they do get way too conservative, and that's an issue." But he goes on this long kind of like a little speech about how the Titans have won by thirty in Cleveland last year and twenty two in Jacksonville, and how they've blown out teams before, and that's fine. But he finishes with this: uh, winning in the NFL is about winning close games. Unfortunately, the Titans have proven they can do that too. And it basically kind of sums up his whole article, his whole answer of it's hard to win games in the NFL. Like every win is fine. Don't worry about it, which is the wrong mentality to have. Like I understand that Titans fans deal with this where we're two and oh, we should be happy. 
like be grateful that's what you've been given and and to an extent i agree like at the end of the day nobody's going to look at that game when the titans get in the playoffs and say okay well we were going to make you the two seed but because that ugly game in jacksonville you only won by three points when you were ahead for so long we're actually going to make you the three seed like it doesn't matter like that as long as you win you win but the fact that you shouldn't expect more from a team when they're up by double digit points for most of the game and then they go completely conservative or that every win is something to be grateful for and there's no critique involved in it i don't like that that's losing that's a losing mentality that's why teams stagnate and don't get better i don't believe that's what Vrabel thinks and i don't think that's an acceptable mindset for fans to have and if you're spouting the idea that just be grateful you're getting wins and don't ask too many questions that can't be your stance like you cannot come from that area and earn any kind of respect because i don't i don't think that's the right way to do things i don't think it's the right way people should be looking at these games early in the season so my stop the nonsense is just don't just be happy that the Titans are winning. It's okay to want more. Now, it's not okay to want every game to be a blowout, but when you're in a position where your team is ahead and they do things that clearly make the game closer and make it harder to win late, it's fair to criticize that. Agreed. Although, like you said, you have to keep in mind, some of that stuff is Titans propaganda. But Right. Uh, those I don't read those mailbags often, but every now and then they're good for a good old Jim White roast of some dumb Titans fan. I, I do love it when he does that. I read them just for that. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for us this week. The Titans take on the Vikings at noon on Sunday. We will be, of course, back a week from today, Wednesday, to uh, recap that game and preview the next one. Uh, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at No Nonsense Pod. And until next time, for Will and Matthias, I'm Luke reminding you and everyone in the sports world to stop the nonsense. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.